The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Rational Security for November 27th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a weekly roundtable podcast featuring Quincha Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein. It's a lively and irreverent discussion of news, ideas, foreign policy, and law. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, the Get Off My Lawn Edition. In the episode, Anderson and Rosenstein were joined by Lawfare's two associate editors, Catherine Pompilio and Heyman Hahn, to discuss the week's big national security news. They spoke about former President Donald Trump's recent announcement declaring his 2024 candidacy, Attorney General Merrick Garland's own announcement of a special counsel to take over the investigations into the former president's interference in the 2020 election, North Korea's recent launch of a new ICBM, and more. This is Rational Security. Scott, were you one of those? Um, were you one of those UVA tryhards that lived on the on the mall on the lawn on the? I lived thing? on the mall. <laughs> on the, <laughs> the, okay. I lived on the lawn. I was one of those tryhards. I am so proudly. surprised. It was amazing. We got to go to the yeah. bathroom outside. We had to heat our room with the fireplace. It was totally worth yeah, it. They I are objectively nothing. terrible, like living conditions, right? Uh, they're better. They're not as bad as it as it sounds. The fireplace is kind of charming. Uh, you do have to use the fireplace because the radiator they have is like nuclear hot and makes it so one half of the room is uninhabitable. Wait, so why did you live there? It's an honor. An honor. <laughs> yeah, it's like a UVA thing. <laughs> it was fun. I regret it. I uh, I made my wife stay on the lawn. We went back for my 10-year college anniversary oh my God. in the middle Not of the nerd. summer and when it was still, 100 degrees outside. Somehow still your wife, too. She is still my wife. Uh, it was like 100 degrees. And then we got locked out of the room in our bathrobes trying to go to the shower. <laughs> and so I had to walk across a bunch of people doing yoga on the lawn to ask them to let me back into my room in like a short, short robe because it was designed for a normal person, not a six foot five person <laughs> like me. I think this is good B-roll, actually. I think I think actually we should just have Scott's story about coming back to UVA. My it's wonderful, beautiful, tolerant wife. Well, I need to say more nice things about because she she's she feels like I only make fun of her on the podcast, so I need to say more complimentary. Does things. she listen so, to man, it? If you can w- work in, she does listen to it now. Yeah, I, we wow. made fun of uh, my wife for not listening to the podcast in like episode two or three of Rats, like two point and since then she's listened to every episode because <laughs> I made her feel guilty. And she's a wonderful, beautiful, supportive woman. 
Uh, and Jen, if you could put that in, that'd be great. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. So good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back with you this week. And I am joined by one, but not both, sadly, of my other co-hosts, the one being Mr. Alan Rosenstein. The worst one. Let's admit it. That's what some people on Twitter seem to feel. <laughs> that's that's, that's what all the, case. the people on Twitter. You and I are scraping bottom side by side, holding hands the whole way. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think you and I are both squarely in second place, but Quinta is the winner. Yeah, the, the 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 Quinta stands uh, are quite vocal on the on the tweets for better or for worse. But sadly, Quinta is not with us this week, as this is a holiday week. As folks are well aware, no doubt about Thanksgiving impending upon us. We are thrilled to be joined by not one but two other special guests. We are doing a Lawfare Associate Editor doubleheader, and we are thrilled to be joined today by Catherine Pompilio and Heyman Han. Heyman, Catherine, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having us. Hello, thank you. I can say with some confidence, I don't think you've been on rational security before, because I think you both started after I took over the show. Is that right? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Yes. We don't have to do that awkward thing where we ask them if they were on the old rational security, <laughs> if they liked it better than this rational security. Let me have oh, to take no. some digs at Ben. We can do that anyway. But we don't have to this time. <laughs> That's our usual traditional mode. I like job security. So no, no, thank you. <laughs> fair policy, fair policy. That's the sort of kind of general subservience that we aim for with our associates. <laughs> That's perfect. Fear and proofreading. Exactly. Well, we are thrilled to have you here for what we are calling the Get Off My Lawn edition in honor of my alma mater, once again, the University of Virginia and its beautiful lawn. Because we have a number of big stories from this past week, despite the impending holiday, it did not let national security professionals rest here in our nation's capital, because there's a number of big breaking stories up our alley that we want to talk about, and we want to talk about them with the two of you and our audience. Our first topic for this week, topic one, going full cleave, Grover Cleveland, that is. Last week, former <laughs> President Donald Trump announced his intention. Deep cuts. Deep cuts. <laughs> Deep cuts. Everybody knows that now. I feel like every every op-ed about this has mentioned the Grover Cleveland parallels. Because last week, former President Donald Trump announced his intention to once again run for president. If he is reelected, he will be the first president to be reelected re-elected for non-consecutive term since, of course, Mr. Grover Cleveland. And he's doing so in spite of the Republicans' relatively weak showing in the midterm elections and his own impending legal troubles. What does Trump's announcement mean for 2024 and after? Topic two. A Mueller mulligan? Question mark. Trump's announcement that he was once again running for president in turn led Attorney General Merrick Garland to make his own announcement last Friday that he was appointing yet another special counsel, this time to take over the investigations into Trump's interference in the 2020 election results and mishandling of classified records. Was this the right move? How will the special counsel's appointment impact the investigations and Trump's political future? And topic three, Pyongyanking our chain. North Korea has launched a new ICBM that it claims can deliver nuclear weapons anywhere in the United States. Should this threat be taken seriously, or is it mostly a bluff, and is the Biden administration and the broader national community doing enough to respond? For our first topic, I will hand it over to me, because we are short on hosts this week, and I am going to go ahead and introduce a couple of topics this time. Uh, Of course, this past Tuesday, a week ago from when we were recording this, former President Trump 
in a very characteristic speech of a sort that I think those of us who have been phasing out some of his public remarks for the last year or two uh, have maybe forgotten the unique pattern and rhythms of a Donald Trump speech, of which this very much was one, uh, announced that he was, in fact, planning to run for president again in 2024. He cast aspersions uh, lightly on some of his other candidates, uh, part of a longer campaign, a kind of bickering of words he's had with particular Florida governor Ron DeSantis. He snuck in an endorsement of Herschel Walker, of course, the uh, Senate candidate that is in a very close runoff in the state of Georgia, uh, although control of the Senate no longer hinges on whether or not he wins. Democrats will control it either way. And he kind of glossed over, uh, I think it's fair to say, or, or put a put a positive gloss on election results, not really seeming to concede that what many people maintain was was the fact that this might not be the best moment for Trump to announce, uh, given that by most assessments, many of the candidates he backed and his kind of wing of the Republican Party appeared to suffer some significant setbacks in midterm elections, um, at least particularly in those contested elections, the most high profile elections where most of the candidates he backed lost. Catherine, let me come to you first. Tell us a little bit about how you think Trump's announcement plays into the kind of trajectory going into 2024. Is this, to a lot of ways, this isn't unexpected. I think we, a lot of us saw this coming. Trump really hasn't been very subtle that that was his intent. Is this a big deal? Is this a medium deal? And and what does it mean for 2024? Do you really think that this means that Trump is on a trajectory to win, that he's a presumptive nominee? Or is it likely to be a hard road to hoe than it was in, for example, 2020, where as the incumbent president, he was pretty much de facto the nominee for the party. Mm -hmm. I would say, I think I'm honestly just scarred a little bit from 2016 and that I'm um, more wary of Trump than I definitely was back then. Sometimes I feel like I have a little bit of, I mean, in doing the research for this podcast, I came across a lot of articles, you know, kind of minimizing, in my opinion, like his actual chances of becoming the nominee. Um, Sometimes I feel like I have a little bit of tinfoil on my head, like, were you guys not here in 2016? Um, We all kind of minimized him back then. And obviously what happened happened. So I think that he's definitely more of a credible threat than I think a lot of people are giving him credit for. Um, And I know we're going to talk about this later, but I'm also really interested to see how uh, his campaigning plays into the legitimacy of the special counsel appointment. And yeah, I'm not super sure, but uh, definitely very wary of his chances. Yeah, I, I have to assume that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with Catherine that that there some, does seem to be a bit of a rush to dismiss Trump. I think part of that is because DeSantis is kind of a shiny new thing. I think part of it is wishful thinking because kind of no one really wants Trump to be the, the candidate in 2024. But I mean, I do think, you know, he is still very, very popular among the Republican base. I think he has more like an 80% favorability rating among Republicans. His fervent supporters have an almost religious connection to him in a way that I just don't think is true, even of DeSantis's supporters. You know, DeSantis is, although certainly riding on a high wave of popularity, especially given his 20-point win in the Florida governor's race, he's still relatively untested. And there's just this such a long history of popular governors getting out into the national stage and flaming out as you know, they make some stupid gaffe or some scandal comes out or whatnot. I mean, how how many times are we going to rely on popular Florida governors to uh, to beat Donald Trump? You know, DeSantis might not quite be low energy Jeb, but I'm not you know convinced yet that he can 
defeat Trump, especially given that Trump is not going to go out without a fight. I mean, I think you already see Trump preparing to fight a real scorched earth uh, strategy against DeSantis. You know, he's beginning to circulate random rumors. I mean, it's just going to get super, super, super ugly. So, you know, I, I my view is still that it is more likely than not that Trump will be the 2024 uh, candidate. At the same time, I will say his announcement was just lame. That's kind of what struck me the most. It was just, it just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's obviously not the most important thing, but I want to be entertained. You know, I mean, if I'm going to have to deal with Donald Trump, at least make it fun. And it was, it was kind of weirdly low energy. Um, the speech was oddly coherent at times. It got into sort of foreign policy issues, which on the one hand, I mean, it's good because in fact, in some ways, the most important thing a president can do is deal with foreign policy. So it's good, I guess, that Trump is thinking about it. But of course, I mean, like Trump has no interesting thoughts about anything, especially foreign policy. So the whole thing was just a very strange display. And and I do think Trump is maybe a little bit, uh, there's a bit of a catch-22 here, which is that, of course, if he sticks to his old shtick, you know, I think he's just going to keep turning off too many people. But if he tries to pivot to being a more normal candidate, it just comes out so lame that I think his base isn't really going to enjoy it too much. Now, I don't think Trump is capable of being a normal candidate for more than <laughs> seven minutes. I don't know what sort of like uh, calm down serum they injected into him before he he announced his uh, his candidacy. I suspect it'll all wear off. But uh, but that's that's my view. And, and just the, you know, more to the point, I just think the Republicans have really gotten themselves into a bad situation because I still think Trump is the presumptive nominee, but obviously his baggage is is such that, you know, I, I think his chances of winning in 2024 are probably substantially less than in 2016 or in 2020. You know, I think that's a good point, Alan, and just in terms of his energy in his announcement being off, it didn't seem very Trump-like. And I actually can't tell if that's because he he clearly wants to run because he clearly loves being in the limelight and wants to go back to being president if he can. But a lot of this is all just so mired down and it almost seems like he himself wasn't as excited. I think there was an energy that and a charm that kind of a crazy charm that he brought to the elections the first time around and it worked. And so I don't know if he's going to start picking that up once he starts really campaigning and going into it, but it almost sounded like he was begrudgingly kind of announcing this presidency, which was very, very strange. And I don't know what that says about his chances for being the presumptive nominee, especially because a lot of the Republican Party does seem like they want to put some level of distance at the very least between the the crazy Trump and the, the Jan 6 and everything else, but at the same time, don't want to lose his his really dedicated fan base. And I'm curious what they're going to do once Congress starts up again, and especially with the January 6th committee, whether they're going to mark that territory and say, we're, we're going to kill that, or if they're going to let it go through, um, and what that says about their willingness to stay close to the Trump camp. So I, I, I am also a little bit cautious about whether he will be the presumptive nominee this time around, because it does seem like the, the midterm elections gave us a little bit of hope that the, the Trump message is not going to carry everyone to the very end. Yeah, I'm going to jump in. I guess I will be the the other voice of, I don't know if it's a reason, but whatever the other end of this the spectrum is here. I think Trump has a real uphill battle to get the nomination this time. I think we all have maybe been a little too, uh, have a little too much recency bias uh, in regards to Trump's influence over the Republican Party. 
um, which while it's been very strong for the last several years, uh, as is often the case, frankly, with like any party leader uh, and the president is almost universally the party leader um, these days in American politics. I, I don't think it's quite absolute and it hasn't been around that long. This movement that he's in charge of is very different from what the Republican Party looked like in 2014 or really even in 2016. Again, remember, he won by essentially splitting the other votes in most of the early states in the Republican primary. He secured 25, 30 percent of the vote. And the Republican Party, it's worth noting, has actually changed its primary process somewhat to make it less winner take all. I can't remember exactly what formula. It's kind of like splits the difference, as I recall, with the Democratic Party, at least I think in early states. But I could be mistaken about that. Something actually I want to look into. Uh, the key point being, you know, I, I'm not sure ca- recapturing that magic in that moment is that easy. Among other things, that the fact that Trump, you know, may not have the energy level, he's got these personal legal concerns that are going to feature very prominently in the next two years and are going to be very real. Um, I mean, he is. I would put smart money on it being going to be criminally indicted, at least at the state level in the state of Georgia. At least people close to him will be if he not, is not personally uh, indicted. But again, they do have audio of him personally ob- lobbying the secretary of state to find additional votes. So he's personally very implicated there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's also personally implicated in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation, where again, there's very clear evidence of his personal involvement. That's a big departure from a lot of other investigations he's been involved in the past, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's January 6th, where you just don't have quite that last connection gap. Real liability coming out of New York in terms of investigation of his business practices and practice of the Trump organization. I don't know if that'd be individually focused on him, but the organization, I think, is a big issue. And on top of that, you just see his views of him within the Republican Party sliding. Only 60% of the Republican Party, Republican voters and Republican-leaning independents, which are in some ways more important, actually had a warm view of President Trump at all coming into the midterm elections. This is in October 2022, I think, when this Pew research uh, was indicated. This has been a kind of gradual decline, shrinking down from something in the 70s a year or so ago, year and a half ago, down to the 60s and continues to decline. And a lot of those numbers, the reason why you get the 60% is because he's got very positive numbers among his traditional demographics, people who aren't college educated, people who are overwhelmingly white, slightly lean male, but not not too much, people who are older, uh, over the age of 50, much stronger demographics there. Everybody else, and those are growth and more motivated elements of even the Republican Party, um, but also the electorate more generally, really his numbers are far lower. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for people to really contest his election. Do they Are they going to do that by really taking on his narrative of the big lie regarding 2020? I kind of suspect not, although I hope some of them do. I think it would be better for the Republic generally if they make that an issue. But I think they're going to take him on as a three-time loser, somebody who's led the Republican Party to a historic defeat in 2022 um, that bucks the trend of midterm elections for most parties. Uh, And so all those factors combined, I have to say, I think he's going to have a rough go of it. I think that's why his advisors, at least reportedly, were saying, don't announce now. Let's wait for at least this blow to begin to fade into the memory a little bit uh, and see the terrain before we make this big announcement. And he decided to go forward anyway. So that that's my sense of things. I'm I'm much more uh, you know bearish on his chances. It sounds like than the three of you. I, these are all excellent points. The only the only thing I would make is that what I think you are describing is in particular the reason why Republicans should not nominate Donald Trump. But that is different than whether they will nominate Donald Trump. And my worry is that his hardcore base is so committed to him that if the other Republican politicians and if the Republican Party could as an institution, right, in the the party decides tradition that we all thought governed 
primaries until 2016, if they could all get behind a particular figure, maybe Ron DeSantis, for example, right? Or I don't know, like DeWine. I mean, there are others. Then I do think you could potentially, you could potentially have the kind of one-on-one showdown in which Trump could be defeated. I mean, again, whether or not he, you could do that in a way that would then preserve the Republican coalition for the general election is a different question. But at least then maybe you could um, defeat Trump in the primary. But I just don't think that the Republicans are going to coalesce around a Trump alternative, right? I mean, there's going to be DeSantis, but I but I think Pence is probably going to challenge. There might be other folks that are going to challenge. Oh, and, and the Republican Party itself is just utterly disorganized, right? There's no party statesman. It's not like George Bush is going to come in and broker in the way that Obama did for Biden, basically, in the in 2020. Or, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to come in um, and have any impact. Uh, and so, you know, my, my worry is that if you're going to still have a somewhat fragmented set of challengers to Trump, he's just going to keep winning these pluralities. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, obviously, Scott, you're, you're absolutely correct. And especially with respect to the legal troubles, um, which don't, you know, directly prevent him from, from running. But, you know, might actually make him even more popular with his base, right? I mean, they might give him the energy he needs to go to his, to his people and say, you know, look at the, the 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 Democratic Party and Biden and the deep state. They hate me and they hate you. And they're willing to do this witch hunt to attack our great movement. You know, we I just I think we don't know how the indictment is actually going to play out um, at, at the primary level. I'd also just like to add to that. I think that this was mentioned, I think, in, by Quinta in last episode, in the last episode of Ratsack. But Trump's base just didn't show up in the midterms like that they like they do in presidential elections, which I think definitely uh, impacts that. And I'm afraid or I worry that Trump could use, you know, the Republican kind of disappointment in the midterms to motivate his base even more to come out in the in the general election. He said in his speech, you know, America's comeback starts now and your country's being destroyed before your eyes. So that coupled with, you know, completely dismissing like the big lie, completely dismissing an indictment or or any other investigation, I think could totally rally a base that was probably a little bit more relaxed this time around. Just one small note on that. I actually think, if I recall correctly, what Quinto was quoting was the narrative coming from people in the Trump camp asserting that's why he lost. Oh, okay. I haven't seen any data actually saying that that's the case. Actually, turnout was really high among yeah. Republican voters for a midterm election generally. And I don't I haven't seen exit polling or something else that would give us a good way to differentiate, you know, more Trump oriented supporter Republican voters from other Republican voters. But, you know, if overall turnout was pretty high for midterm election, not as high as a presidential election, that's never the case. You know, the thing that really proved to be disadvantageous is that the turnout is way higher among those who are concerned about reproductive rights and, you know, democratic process concerns and generally were younger voters. Um, those were like the big surge to the polls that really seemed to, to sway things these times. And I don't know what we know what motivated those voters. Um, I agree. I mean, you're going to get more people turn out who are motivated by individual candidates. And there are probably more people who feel that way about Donald Trump than feel that way about Joe Biden, probably if he's the nominee for the Democrats in 2024, who knows? But a lot of people feel, also feel that way against Trump. Um, so I just I, I want to see more data before I really buy into any of those narratives that there's a secret wave waiting just at Donald Trump's beck and call um, in 2024 that for some reason he couldn't get out in 2022. I, I do have a question for you, Scott. I'm, I'm curious before we leave this topic. So, I, you know, again, I totally get your your skepticism of, of Trump's chances here. So I, am I right to assume then that you think that if it's not Trump, it's almost certainly DeSantis 
And if so, I'm curious why you think that. I mean, is it is it because DeSantis is just sort of the next person who's most popular at the moment? Or do you think DeSantis really has certain gifts that, that make him likely to be able to sort of thread the needle uh, in, in being, you know, Trumpish, but not too Trumpish? I don't think it's going to be Ron DeSantis either. I don't know. I, I'm not saying it won't be Ron DeSantis. I don't. This far out from an election, it is foolhardy to really get a sense of particularly untested candidates without national support bases um, to really know who's going to be the nominee. Look at polling numbers for almost every major party nominee that we've had from an open slate, like in, when you don't have an incumbent here, you know, the, it, it's always really competitive. Trump being a like pseudo incumbent here complicates that a little bit. But I have to say I think that it is really, you know, a bit of an open field at this point. And there are a lot of other candidates with a lot of pluses who are very ambitious and have been waiting for a moment where they can make something like this work. Nikki Haley is the one that jumps out to my mind. She really carefully crafted a path through the Trump administration that's friendly enough to pull, you know, maybe support from people who are friendly to the Trump administration, different enough and has a different enough record prior to the Trump administration to pull in maybe some more moderate voters. Um, she's, you know, a woman. She is a person of color. Uh, she has a lot of factors that can pull in that might help in different places from a southern state um, that's increasingly competitive um, and that the Republicans kind of need as part of their arc of support. There's a lot of factors going for a lot of other candidates. It's just too early to give it to anyone. And, and that's part of the reason why I think assumptions that Trump is going to be the nominee are just just too much, uh, too much hindsight, not enough foresight. This is related, but... Probably not as closely. I I am curious what everyone here thinks about the fact that Trump chose not to join Twitter again, even though he was invited by Sir Elon Musk to do so. Does I mean, what does that say about? I, I feel like the Twitter was kind of his his podium for for getting his supporters in, and genuinely, it's a genuine question about whether he has the energy to really pull everyone back into this next run. What does that say about him and where he's at in terms of his his reelection campaign? Yeah, that's an interesting question of why he's not back on Twitter. My my understanding, and I don't remember, Scott, did you tell me this or did someone else tell me this, is that he may be contractually obligated to Truth Social to not post stuff on Twitter unless he also posts it on on Truth Social. I think I think he also has a lot fewer followers now on Twitter than maybe he used to. I don't know if his follower count is 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 the same. But I do agree with you. I do agree with you, Heyman. I mean, Trump is maybe the greatest master of earned media in American history. Um, and a lot of that came from saying crazy things on Twitter and then getting the news cycle to um, obsessively uh, follow that. And so I do wonder if he can't get back on Twitter, if he can't get that uh, attention back, will he be able to to drive the news cycle. Though then again, I mean, it's not like journalists aren't on Truth Social. I mean, every time you post something crazy on Truth Social, someone just screenshots it onto Twitter. Sure. So, you know, I do wonder if if he needs Twitter that much anymore. But it's it's an interesting point uh, uh, about losing, at this point, voluntarily, this this kind of amazing mouthpiece. Right. I mean, he people used to track him and say Trump tweeted, and it, it was almost like a king's decree or something so direct, and people really took his word at face value on that site. And I mean, I just checked right now, he has 87.6 million followers oh, and okay. you can actually see his profile still. So it's there. The last that's, thing he's that's tweeted- a lot, That's a lot of followers. <laughs> it's a lot of followers. I think that it's, a, it, I'm just very curious. I mean, maybe Scott will come in with the contractual legal obligations that he might have to not be on Twitter. But in all seriousness, I really do think that his Trump 
Twitter presidency was particularly effective in driving his agenda and really getting people to bite onto the bait that worked with his followers. So the fact that he's not really coming triumphantly back on and Kanye did is just is just a very interesting set of developments, I think. You know, A, I, I have read in the media that there may be contractual issues here and that may be a barrier. I kind of doubt they're that serious because Truth Social is an organization run entirely by sycophants of Donald Trump, like by 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 matter of definition and purpose. So I can't imagine they would actually like pose serious litigation risk if you were to do something like go back on Twitter. But more fundamentally, I, I actually kind of suspect the significance of Twitter is a frankly, like a bias built into people who are particularly strongly on Twitter and who disagree with Donald Trump more specifically. I mean, there's a long time when we thought the Donald, remember the like kind of Reddit sub forum um, was in fact the big forum for organizing among Trump supporters, particularly during the early primaries. There's been a bunch of different avenues here. He's still got, you know, lots of very kind of far right OAN and news type networks, you know, broadcasting videos. He still gets speeches. He still gets talking heads on those places that reach his core supporters. And I don't think he was ever a guy who's ever really found his mission is in reaching out to people and reaching broader audiences. Um, so in terms of his core supporters, I, I feel like he's just got the avenues of communication he, he has there. And going on Twitter now, you know, looks like he's kind of making himself beholden to Elon Musk a little bit. And I kind of suspect you know, Trump is a guy driven by gut and instinct and like an overabundance of pride. And I kind of suspect that's the thing getting in the way. But I'm not sure it actually matters that much in the long run. Do you also think that people are just kind of tired of it or we're just used to it? Like Alan made the point that he's still saying these crazy things on on Truth Social. And if you really wanted to see them, you know, you could. And journalists are on there looking at them. I think, you know, a lot of the appeal and a lot of the attention that he got the first time he ran was because you know, it's the first time a presidential candidate had ever said crazy things along the lines of what he had said. And now, you know, not to minimize it, but sometimes it's just kind of like, oh, gosh, it's Trump again, you know. I do think there's some of that. I mean, I, th- I think that the news media in particular has gotten much better um, and has developed certain antibodies against letting Trump totally drive the news cycle. I think that's true for the mainstream slash leftish news media. Um, but I think it's also true of a lot of right-wing media news media. I mean, especially the Murdoch news media. Um, I think after the announcement, there was a lot of media reportage about how you know Fox News is very negative on Trump, and the Wall Street Journal is negative. the The New York Post uh, had you know great anti-Trump pun headlines like "Trumpy Trumpy Dumpty." That was pretty good. <laughs> so uh, you know, I I do think that 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 is part of it, and I also think that you know the thing with Trump. I mean, he has the most name recognition of maybe any American politician in like I, I mean decades, right? And so at just this point, you know what you think of him, and so I wonder if it's just there's just very little he can say that can move any needles. So all of it might just kind of be baked in. Well, of course. President Trump's, former President Trump's announcement last week was just one of two big Trump-related announcements we got. The other came from Attorney General Merrick Garland, who on Friday, a kind of Trump Friday moment, something those of us in lawfare have not really experienced uh, in a couple of years as regularly, although we used to do it quite regularly, um, but kind of a late Friday Trump announcement uh, that he was nominating an individual by the name of Jack Smith 
a longtime prosecutor, most recently an international criminal law prosecutor based in The Hague with a pretty interesting international tribunal there, as a special counsel to take over the oversight of ongoing Justice Department investigations into Donald Trump relating to in, uh, interference in the results of the 2020 elections of various stripes and also the mishandling of classified documents, most notably at the Mar-a-Lago estate, although I don't actually know if it's, you know it's entirely limited to that. Let me start with you on this, Alan, as our former Justice Department colleague. How big a deal is this and what does it seem like was motivating Garland's decision to t- make such a visible move, particularly so soon after Trump's announcement in a way that I, I'm not sure the optics would be ideal, all other things being equal. You know, was there a legal reason why the attorney general felt like he had to make this move or was strongly advised to take this move? Was it a strategic decision? And, and where do we think it goes? How do we think it fits into this broader picture for 2024 and, and more generally our democracy? Yeah. So, I mean, just as a preliminary matter, if, if folks haven't gotten a chance to listen to our special emergency podcast uh, on that we released last Friday, I, I highly recommend it. We had a great lineup um, of folks talking about this. In terms of how big of a deal it is, I mean, I'd say it's a it's a mild to medium deal uh, in the sense of meaningfully changing the course of the investigation. I mean, look, anything involving um, prosecuting the former president of the United States who is, you know, running for re-election and is presumptively the co-front runner, I mean, I think we can at least say for the Republican nomination, anything that touches on that investigation is is a big deal. And given the history of special counsels, obviously we have Robert Mueller, but you know others obviously, um, this is all a big deal. At the same time, there are reasons to think that the appointment of this special counsel is not going to fundamentally change the ongoing investigation. And this is for, I think, a couple of reasons. The first is that clearly Merrick Garland wanted this investigation in-house as long as uh, as long as possible, and really felt that I think his hand was forced uh, once Trump announced his reelection, especially given that Merrick Garland's boss, President Joe Biden, has also basically said that he's going to run in 2024. Now, in announcing the special counsel, Garland said that the reason he was doing this was because kind of in the, it's in the public interest um, to have s- some additional bit of independence. It's arguable that it's also just a conflict of interest for the attorney general to not have a special counsel. But the point is that you know the fact that he waited this long means that a huge amount of this investigation has already happened. Um, obviously, we've been investigating January 6th, since January 6th, um, and the investigation to Mar-a-Lago is going on for a long time. Um, so this is unlike the appointment of Robert Mueller as special counsel, who was brought in to run an investigation. This seems to be much more an appointment of a special counsel to take over an investigation that, if not is basically done is largely completed or at least is well on its way to review that and to be the person to ultimately make the the decision of whether or not to kind of pull the trigger on an indictment uh though given the how the special counsel works ultimately that decision could be countermanded by by uh, Merrick Garland who will ultimately have the final say in in all of this and the other reason i think to think that this is not going to change the the course of the investigation too much and to point Scott made in the last segment, why I think this will, you know, ultimately Trump will probably be indicted at least for Mar-a-Lago, if not also for January 6th, is just reading the tea leaves of who the special counsel Jack Smith is. You know, he is a very experienced federal prosecutor. Um, He was, I think he was at EDNY for a long time. 
Um, he was the uh, head of DOJ's public integrity division. He was, uh, he is currently, or was until I don't know, a week ago, um, the chief prosecutor for the, uh, the Kosovo uh, war crimes trial in the Hague. And, you know, from talking to people who have interacted with him, um, he's just a very serious, very aggressive prosecutor. He, he's not the person that you bring in to, you know, slow walk an investigation. Now, I, you know, he will exercise his own independent judgment. There's no reason to think that, you know, he's just going to rubber stamp what's happened so far. But, but I do think that there are enough signs, including statements from both the attorney general and from him, that this will not slow down the investigation, that really this is done to bring in an, a fresh independent set of eyes, but one that is ultimately going to do what federal prosecutors tend to do, which is where there is a strong legal and factual case bring an indictment, even if it is politically costly and messy. What do you think the um, Justice Department gains by having Jack in particular do this kind of, I guess, handoff situation as opposed to just seeing it through to the very end? I do have to clarify also, it is not Twitter Jack, but they look weirdly alike. I don't know if you've noticed this. They have like the exact same facial hair. And so it's very, very comparable. But just because Heyman's familiar enough with him to call him Jack, it's not Twitter Jack. It's a different Jack. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. That would Honestly, be a real turn. Given that Elon Musk does appear to be the god emperor now, I would not surprise me if, if he appointed Jack Dorsey as the special counsel to decide on, on Trump returning to Twitter. You can imagine these interesting parallel proceedings going on um, in the fresh hell that we all, uh, that we all live in. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know what it gives DOJ. I mean, look, DOJ is run by rule following order muppets. You know, I say that not as a criticism. I am a rule following order <laughs> muppet myself. Um, so, like, they have the regulations. If you read when they're supposed to appoint a special counsel, like this is obviously when you appoint a special counsel. Like, this is not that I think controversial. So, I don't think it's that much of a what do they gain here. I think it's just like this is kind of what they had to do. And Merrick Garland, you know, the 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 most order muppety of the order muppets, you know, I, I think I think did this. I don't think it gains them, frankly, anything because uh, the people that they might want to convince of everything being above board are probably so convinced in the conspiracy theory of the bad old deep state um, that nothing is going to actually convince them. I mean, especially because a special counsel is not fundamentally independent of DOJ. Um, the special counsel ultimately reports to DOJ. This is not an independent counsel. So I don't think this gains them anything, but I also don't think it costs them that much, right? It's, you know, um, and, and Peter, Peter Strzok, uh, the, you know, formerly of the FBI, who was obviously central to the um, investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, you know, he pointed out that, spe you know, special counsels can get spun up very quickly. So you're, you're maybe looking at a one month delay, uh, but ultimately probably not much. Uh, is is going to change? So you know this is this is good for the the rule of law, but uh, I'm not sure it's going to make that much of an of an impact ultimately on on the the outcome for, for better or for worse. Um, shifting a little bit, but Trump called on Republicans to fight the special counsel appointment. What can they do about it, if anything? I I don't think they can do anything about it. I mean, they can harass DOJ. They can try to force uh, you know Merrick Garland to come and testify every. 35 minutes, they can hold, you know, whomever they want in criminal contempt, though, of course, it doesn't really matter that much, since the people who have to enforce criminal contempt are the very people who will be held in criminal contempt by a uh, uh, angry Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, or whoever is going to uh, chair the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and, and in some ways, 
uh, and this is kind of to your point, Heyman, you know, it might help DOJ a little bit in that it it gives other DOJ officials the ability when they're going before Congress to respond to you know, Jim Jordan by saying, look, we're just not involved. Like, I don't know anything about the Trump stuff, the Trump investigation. That's all through the special counsel. Go talk to them. And then, of course, the special counsel will say, no, I'm not going to talk to them because uh, I'm not going to talk to you because it's an ongoing investigation. So it's kind of a way of, 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 of funneling. And the other question is, are they going to the Republicans want to give Jack Smith uh, a hard time for this? I mean, you know, if, if you if you, uh, you know, follow, you know, especially Scott's logic from the first segment about this is maybe an opportunity for Republicans to get rid of Trump. Uh, they don't really want to. Then, of course, you get into these complicated dynamics about, well, if Mark Meadows has a, you know, a, a crazy MAGA Matt Gates led majority, uh, you know, tiny majority that's going to make his life miserable. Can, can he tamp down on the the radical fringe elements of his caucus? I suspect the answer is no. But I don't think, frankly, the appointment or not of a special counsel fundamentally changes um, how much damage Congress can or cannot do to the Department of Justice. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And on this question about um, the relationship between the special counsel and Congress, remember that Comey decided that he would kind of keep Congress apprised of what was happening, and Mueller was kind of like, no, I don't want to do a lot of testifying. Does what? What, do you, what is your sense of special... Counsel, I can't call him Jack anymore because I'm going to get yelled at. Um, but the the new special counsel, what do we think he's going to do? And does it matter how much interaction he has with Congress or reporting he does to Congress for for the ultimate decision? Yeah, I I, I think that I don't want to relitigate 2016 and the decisions that then FBI Director Comey made. I do think in retrospect they have not turned out. They they, they don't look that great, and I don't think even Comey is particularly satisfied with a lot of the stuff that happened in 2016. I think I think that maybe the lesson that DOJ has learned is honestly stick to the tight-lipped procedures for a reason. Um, so I, I don't expect that Merrick Garland is going to be going out of his way to provide updates to, to Congress because I just think people have learned that, that you just, you, you know, you're going to get in trouble no matter what you do. And the more you can keep it by the book, the better it is for you. Yeah. And it's worth bearing in mind, you know, the tool that the Republican majority in the House is going to have is the oversight tool, is the ability to call witnesses, secure documents. And ongoing proceedings in regards to criminal investigations is like one of the third rails of executive privilege or maybe the opposite of a third rail. It's like one of the core kind of pillars of executive privilege, uh, as I recall, in terms of what the executive branch generally fights the hardest on against having to disclose for very obvious and frankly, pretty well-founded reasons, right? Like, you know, you can't have people going to interfere in a criminal investigation in a variety of ways. It can be really damaging to have them do so. Um, that's true in a FOIA context. It's true in other statutory disclosure contexts and, and true by my recollection in congressional oversight as well. And so I think as Alan noted, this lets you kind of segregate the investigation a little bit more, um, although obviously they're going to pull staff from, you know, 
the existing offices that are working on this probably keep a lot of the existing case officers and prosecutors um, precisely because they already know the case fairly well and they don't want to slow things up. But hopefully that helps a little bit. But I really think that that's going to be the main the main avenue of, of putting pressure. And it, it's less about actually getting at the investigation, more about undermining the credibility of the people involved, right? Um, because you can't really get at the facts. And the Justice Department, actually, the approach that I agree, I think Alan's 100% right, the DOJ is going to and has doubled down on about saying, we're not going to talk about anything until the procedurally appropriate moment. There are leaks, there are things that come out. Sometimes there are necessary filings that we discovered in regards to the MAL procedures, but they try not to generally. The problem with that is that that lets, gives other people the ability to shape the narrative. And that's going to be, you know, I think the House Judiciary Committee's inclination. And if Jim Jordan is the chair, which seems likely not, I don't think that's been established yet. I could be wrong, but I don't believe so. Um, but it's, I think, presumed to be the case. He's already acting like he's the incoming chair uh, in terms of notifying people about, you know, hearings and potential witnesses, you know. That's the direction he's going to lean in. That may not be great. Um, you know, again, if Trump looks really guilty for the stuff like Mar-a-Lago hurt his reputation, you had people understanding that this is a bad thing, including lots of Republicans saying this is a bad thing that if this these facts are true, you know, digging deeper and really bringing higher emphasis to that might be a problem. So maybe they end up backing off for that reason. But it really depends on the kind of trajectory of the investigation, how it intersects with those oversight incentives and the kind of abuse of oversight incentives, honestly. Yeah, and I just want to add add to the point about oversight. I mean, if if I were a unscrupulous Republican head of the Judiciary Committee, I think the smarter play would actually not to be to necessarily question the integrity of the special counsel directly, but instead to use it to make more hay out of Hunter Biden and the laptop and all that stuff and say, look, you know, you appointed a special counsel for Trump, but why aren't you appointing a special counsel to uh, investigate the son of the president, right? Who we know the president is in contact with. I think that would probably be the the smartest way uh, for Republicans to use a special counsel, not to not to beef up Trump per se, but to try to bring down Joe Biden, right? If you can use it as an opportunity to bring sort of everyone down into the muck, uh, as it were. Um, and so I would not be surprised if we see that as a a tool, especially because you know, it, there's some plausibility to it, right? Like, what, why isn't there a special counsel for Hunter Biden, right? I will say, I think the number one reason they may not do that, this is changing topics a little bit, but I think it's an interesting thing to touch on, is that I'm not sure it's in the interest of the House Judiciary Committee for them to appoint a special counsel. Um, for the simple reason that once the Justice Department appoints a special counsel, all the, they've done met the demand of the House Judiciary Committee, if that's the demand they're putting forward, and then all of a sudden, all of this gets put in that black box of non-communication for months and months until the mm -hmm. special counsel finishes the investigation. Their ability to shape the narrative, drive out facts, really begins to diminish substantially. Um, you know, I think Jordan's going to want to preserve the prerogative to drive his own investigation and shape his own narrative around those sorts of facts. And that's probably only going to be made harder if they appoint a special counsel. I frankly think it, it, you may, I could easily see a strategic discussion where the Biden administration says, look, the best way to handle all of this is actually to be appointed special counsel, have an investigation, have somebody look at it. We're not actually worried about our legal exposure because I, I actually don't think, I haven't seen anything that suggests there is strong legal exposure here. Maybe problematic behavior and a lot of other strikes, but not actual legal exposure, which is what the Justice Department is going to look at. And once you have those proceedings and it comes out crystal clear, like it actually kind of indicates you. I mean, that was kind of Trump's experience with the Mueller experience. I think we all had serious doubts about how the Justice Department handled it, but they pretty effectively spun it to say, look, DOJ basically vindicated us through the special counsel process, and it, it really did take a lot of the air out of that issue in terms of public salience for a long time. And 
I, I think this issue is frankly like, again, the real legal risk is far more limited um, than it was in that case. And maybe that makes some strategic sense for the Biden administration to think about. So long story short, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is not the, the last special counsel we see the Biden administration establish. You know, we may yet see Attorney General Garland uh, make one or two more of these announcements. At the end of the day, I think it's a great subliminal messaging from Garland to have a former war crimes prosecutor being the one to take over this part of the investigation. It was just classic move. Very, very well done. But can I ask both of you to give us like a law 101 of sorts? So there are obviously separate tracks of litigation happening at once and in addition to the special investigation. So the last deadline for Special Master Deary to finish his investigation, I believe, is at the end of December um, for Mar-a-Lago in particular. And so how, how do all these different strands come together with the special counsel in terms of timeline? And when when do you think it's going to end? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the special counsel necessarily changes any of those timelines. I mean, obviously, I guess DOJ could in some of these pending cases ask for a little more time to bring the special counsel up to speed. I don't think they're going to do that, right? They're just going to I mean, DOJ is good at meeting meeting. Definitely not in that case where they're yeah. trying to make where things they, move yeah. faster. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I, I, and again, right? I I think this is one of these. Just to get back to the kind of the original point about what how this special counsel differs from the 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 Russia investigation special counsel. You know, I, I don't expect this to actually change the course of litigation. Right. This is basically just you have now a new boss who who needs to be read in, but ultimately is almost certainly just going to keep the investigation going at at at, at full speed. Um, now, how those other investigations go, you know, we don't know. There's the Mar-a-Lago investigation. There's an appeal before the 11th Circuit about all of that. So we're going to see what happens there. We don't even have anything on the other stuff, on the January 6th stuff itself. So, uh, you know, I th- the answer to your question is, I think we don't know. But but there's little reason to think that the appointment of the special counsel is going to change um, how these investigations are going to go. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think we know, you know, the end of the Deary process is just the end of the, you know, review that former President Trump has requested of these records. It's not the end of the Justice Department's investigation. It really, you know, it lifts what might be a barrier, but frankly, I think is less of a barrier than it may once it seemed to the investigation proceeding, along with the appellate proceedings, everything else that's happening in that case. Like, you know, the investigation's ongoing, but it's going to take longer. The Justice Department's going to take its sweet time. It's going to build as strong a case as it can before it reaches a decision. Um, so I wouldn't expect, uh, you know, any actual motion on this from the special counsel's office well in, until well into next year. I think there's some incentive to get it done, reach a conclusion well in advance of the next election. Um, but there's a big window there between now and then. Okay, I think I'm going to, since Quinta's not here, I'm going to do the Quinta transition because there should be one no. per episode yeah, from 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 uh, from terrible things at home to terrible things abroad. Let's yeah. talk about North Korea, everyone. Um, so don't make fun of Quinta like this, Alan. Wow. Why, why Quinta? Oh, are you kidding me? Quinta makes fun of me all the time. It's 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 uh it's it's we're, it's because we're such good friends. And this is what we do. Quinta, Quinta, Quinta can get back will to be me. the first to acknowledge she's bad at segues. Yes, she will. <laughs> she will be the first to acknowledge she's bad. At, it's like a little bit we have. Um, <laughs> So let's talk about North Korea. So uh, they fired a, a rocket, uh, one of many. A- and uh, as Scott mentioned at the, t- at the top, uh, this uh, ICBM, which landed, I think, somewhere off the coast of Japan, North Korea claims could hit anywhere in the United States and stick a nuke on top of that baby. And, you know, now it's, now it's a real party. So this is the usual North Korea missile test, though we have some additional uh, fun quirks to it, like the 
publicity blitz inside North Korea about it, uh, which is not just the usual Kim Jong-un in front of a giant missile, but Kim Jong-un and his daughter, you know, who's this like sweet, I don't know how old she is, but you know, this this sweet teen in a big puffy white coat, uh, you know, really heartwarming pictures of of, uh, father and daughter, except that unlike the usual sweet picture of father and daughter, there is a World War III causing giant nuclear capable ICBM in the background. It's truly very profound uh, iconography. So I want to start with you, uh, Heyman. I have not thought about North Korea for months, which has been great. But that means that uh, it'd be helpful if you could bring us up to speed. Uh, What has old crazy Kim, um, who is 38 years old, I read, which is just amazing. He is just, he's too young to be uh, dragging the world into potential nuclear war. Um, What has he been up to lately? And can you contextualize this latest missile test uh, against just the last couple of months of North Korea? Yeah. Well, I think one thing you said there that we should focus on is that it is usual insofar as they have been testing pretty regularly this year, uh, more frequently than they did last year. And so that is a general reason to have alarm bells. But I always, whenever talking about nuclear weapons, like to just have a have a sobering kind of view as much as possible. And yes, this is terrible, but it is a little bit normal um, for North Korea. So they tested the Hwasong-17 ICBM technology, and they did that in response, they say, in response to the joint military exercises that the US and South Korea do pretty regularly. The biggest one that happened in recent months was in August. And that was a big deal because they had paused that for a bit to try and have better relations and think about ways to mitigate the problem um, overall. And so there had been a pause, but that restarting pushed North Korea to respond in testing these ICBMs again. The Hwasong-17, when they first restarted testing failed. And then this time it was a successful launch. And so that is what is causing the the Security Council to meet. And they met yesterday to you know, come up with a resolution to condemn North Korea for having done this. And of course, Biden also asked Xi Jinping at the G20 summit to kind of use his leverage to try and get North Korea to stop testing. But um, this is kind of, I think, to put a broader point on it, a a return to a sad normal that kind of had gone away in in previous years. And it's in part due to, frankly, the Biden administration has a lot of other things going on right now. Obviously, we're in the middle of a war with Ukraine. Um, There's the coronavirus that's still going on. There's um, a pandemic, there's inflation. And North Korea has actually been kind of lower down on the administration's, I guess, prospectus of what it wants to be focusing on these days. And it seems kind of like North Korea is signaling that they want more attention and um, kind of no, really just asking um, them to be recognized again because they're what they're from the North Korean perspective. I think that there is a bit of an ebb and flow between administrations, right? Of kind of Obama's strategic patience and then Trump's very pathbreaking, weird normalization effort. And now we're back to the Biden administration, more of a traditional viewpoint on we need to denuclearize North Korea. Uh, but again, with all these other things going on. There's not a lot of 
a special attention given to North Korea. So they're starting up their testing again. And unfortunately, it is successful. So I totally get the framing and I, I agree with it that this just seems to be a lot of the same story that we hear over and over again. There's some quiet. North Korea comes up with an excuse to do something provocative. Everyone freaks out. Everyone looks to Russia and China. They do nothing. And then everyone kind of forgets about it until the next time. Yeah. At the same time, you know, this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the first successful missile test of a missile that could deliver a nuclear payload to anywhere in the United States, right? We're, you know, we're not talking about a, a strike on Alaska, which, which would be bad, right, to be clear, right? But we're talking about a missile that could theoretically um, deliver a nuclear weapon to Washington, D.C., which, of course, would lead to the complete annihilation of North Korea. Um, but that's cold comfort to the United States and cold comfort to South Korea, which no doubt would be eliminated as, as well. So although this is in some ways a return to just the usual cycle of provocation. I mean, is there something legitimately new and potentially destabilizing um, about North Korea having the ability to strike the United States? Well, certainly, yeah, certainly it's a big step forward in terms of them being able to deliver a nuclear warhead, right, which is the the whole enterprise here and the whole point. And so it, it does matter for sure that this version of the Hwasong-17 being tested was successful. But I guess then the, the the question I always have is, what's the appropriate response, right? So then the appropriate response, one of the favorite routes, as we've already talked about, is is kind of the U.S. asking China and Russia to, to leverage. The other response is kind of like, continue the joint military exercises with South Korea the uh, terminal high altitude defense system in South Korea right now is also in theory to try and block any sort of missiles that might go out and intercept it before it gets far off the peninsula. So that's going on. But a lot of those things, well, the first one of Russia and China don't seem to work because Russia and China aren't going to do anything about that. And then the second kind of um, we need to be doing other things to strengthen our presence in the Korean peninsula often just provokes them even farther and pushes them farther down the line of let's do more testing. And I think that that's, that goes to this asymmetry problem, right? Because the U S and South Korea are working with conventional warfare. A lot of times, right. We're talking about F 16s. We're talking about submarines. We're talking about on the ground military power. Whereas the only thing that North Korea has is, the the nuclear option literally and so i just i whenever i see this happening it's just striking that there are a bunch of different avenues that we try and counteract north korea's moving forward of their nuclear program but north korea the only thing they can do is just continue their nuclear program so it just pushes us closer and closer to the brink so and if if you ask me no one asked me but if you ask me about what we should be doing overall to I, I'm I'm asking you. I'm if you're officially being asked, <laughs> okay. go for it. Well, I think if if we want to really respond to North Korea and the North Korean problem, I I do think it's an investment of um, having like you know diplomatic relations. Everyone kind of wants to make fun of that, but actually having lines of communication going so that it's a bottom up approach to denuclearizing the peninsula and having that be an ongoing conversation and not just in response to and sanctioning of North Korea. I think that is a longstanding project that, again, different administrations have different perspectives on that. But as a general matter, I think in 
2005, 2006 with the six party talks that were happening. There was a lot of progress being made back then, but once those started deteriorating, I don't think we've ever really returned since to this kind of keeping lines of communication open and actually trying like at lower levels, not going straight to Kim Jong-un, but like talking to diplomats and having these relations continuing forward as a as a steady state, going back to something like that um, and really trying to build denuclearization as a longstanding project as opposed to being reactionary or just combative on on the front level. I think that's kind of I would love to see a response like that. Yeah, you know, I really think you hit on kind of a conundrum that both the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration have found themselves in, uh, and the, to some extent, the Bush administration, Clinton administration before them, is that I, so? I don't think there is actually an easy path out of this particular conundrum. I think your point on engagement is a good one, and but that's about creating opportunities for a path, right? Like creating situations where you can see mutual willingness to move towards some, you know, non-zero some outcome. Uh, manifest themselves. But the problem is that where you've seen major investments be outlaid, you saw a major one by the Clinton administration, right, um, which led to a substantial degree of re-engagement, lightning of sanctions, and then a quick slide back to, by North Korea, back towards a nuclear weapon program, back towards uh, a variety of behaviors that at least the Clinton administration had been under, under the understanding had been um, kind of taken off the table by, or, or at least substantially limited by the behavior. And, and the leverage was the same. Like you have this nuclear potential at the time, like realized now, or that even a nuclear capability be developing one at the time. And that's a point of leverage that keeps coming back when you're in a situation where there's really nothing you can do. Um, and that's the regime's main sort of avenue. The, the Biden administration, you know, has actually come out as, as and said, I, I remember hearing people from um, the National Security Council kind of quoted saying, we're trying to split the difference between Trump and Obama, right? We Obama had a kind of there's nothing we can do about this. So the best thing we can do is, you know, stop rewarding North Korean brinksmanship by seeing it as a reason to engage instead, keep sustained pressure on and assume the consequences of that pressure are going to build. To some extent it did domestically, but the cost of most economic sanctions are borne most heavily by the public, not by the elites in charge of the country. That's particularly true in North Korea. Then the Trump administration, initially very hostile, and I think this is where like the threat to hit the United States comes in. If you remember, there was a long debate of whether the Trump administration would consider a bloody nose kind of strike on um, North Korea in 2017 when there was a really heated rhetoric before the Trump administration completely reversed course and said, no, we're going to do high level engagement. Really interesting. I still would love to see a explanation of exactly what led to that complete reversal, of course. But, you know, nonetheless, it, it did lead to this kind of engagement and maybe avenues of communication, but at this very high level. And it's not clear what really that led either. Part of that's because I'm not sure they really had a strategic vision about where it was going to leave, uh, lead, excuse me. But it also just wasn't done with anything specific in mind. And I'm not sure, I think you hit on something really astute here, Heyman, where you don't know really what the Biden administration splitting difference is going to look like. Are we just talking about high level talks? In addition to like not like slow high level talks, instead of being very aggressive and seeking like leader leader summits, slow climbs up the ladder. The truth is, like in my understanding, and I'm not an expert, as my understanding, North Korea has been very resistant to that because they really want to see a degree of high level engagement. I think because for them, like that's the the thing that they're kind of angling for. Sanctions relief would be great, but in the first case, they want to look like they're getting the United States to capitulate and kind of come to the table, and that they have that strength. 
maybe that's worth kind of giving up a little bit. Uh, like maybe there's that's a trade off. And I, I was not one who was overly critical of the Trump administration in pursuing those engagements because I think there are reasons to do them at a variety of levels where you can. But I wouldn't be too sanguine about there being like an easy out here. And I think that's the reason why you don't see people being willing to make much of an investment in this topic in recent administrations, except for the weird kind of Trump effort, because it, it's not clear that the payoff is likely to be that high. The incentive structure just doesn't seem to be there either for North Korea. I, I will say, you know, my inclination is that I think there's probably a good example of a, of, a, of a case where sanctions just have proven very ineffective because, if anything, they really reinforce the hierarchy of authority within North Korea, right? Like no one else in North Korea, except for the regime, has really any economic power, political power, in part because they can't engage in trade or otherwise kind of advance their lives other than through the regime. Sanctions double down on that authority to some extent because the regime controls those illicit means by which they can actually develop and function as a national economy and ties to China, which are essential, all the sort of avenues. Maybe this is a case where you provide sanctions relief and you try and structure it in a way that begins to empower other folks in North Korea, develop a local economy that's not contingent upon the state. Again, try and get those conditions that we usually associate with more robust political change to cultivate in North Korea over time. But even that is just speculative. I, I, there's no real easy way out. And I, and I think that is not a reasonable reason why administrations are so hesitant to make a big public commitment to this particular issue. Yeah, no, that's that's super fair. And far be it from me to suggest that it's an easy solution or that there is certain um, a, a path forward that is particularly right. I just think that, you know, if we think about where we are again, as Alan brought up, this is a, a big deal insofar as it's a new it's a new capability to bring a warhead. And I'm, by the way, I want to be clear that just because they have the ICBM technology and just because they have a warhead does not mean that they can actually deliver like those two things coordinating too is there's a little, a, probably a longer way to go. But the, the fact that they have this new technology is a big deal. And, and so the, the question becomes, why would we want to respond in, in any way other than trying to like normalize relations. Like I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should try and assuage them and that we need to be kind of bowing down to what is ultimately terrible things that they're doing. But engagement has, as a general matter, decreased. And there was a time back in the early 2000 or mid 2000s that we were kind of close to having some sort of six-party agreement. So I think that having lower level diplomatic talks that continue to be like open lines of communication and engagement that isn't just because they're testing and because they're getting closer, but actually because we want to finally resolve this ongoing conflict over 50 years. Um, I think that kind of attitude or that willingness to want to bring North Korea back into the global community is something that we might consider nowadays, given the fact that they're getting so close. So I think that's all I'm I, I'm saying. And I think that, again, because it's just such an asymmetric situation where the US and South Korea can do things that are strategic in the the Pacific area that, you know, seems pretty normal, like joint exercises, 
and continuing to build capability in that region is is something we should be doing and is normal. But again, the only way that North Korea really is able to respond to those things is just going more and more and more nuclear. So that kind of asymmetry, to me at least, signals a real impetus to try and restart engagement and find different avenues than doing the whole, let's go to the UN Security Council and have them condemn again for however many of time and ask Russia and China who will not do that. To add, to pivot a little bit, um, I just wanted to cover uh, Kim Jong-un bringing his daughter to the launch, which I found to be very confusing. But I just wanted to add that I don't think that this was a daddy-daughter day for Kim Jong-un. Let's go look at missiles. I don't think, though, that that was for us, I think, or like from a an international perspective, I think that it's probably messaging for the North Korean people of of uh, longevity. You know, North Korea is a hereditary dictatorship, and I think it's just a message to the people about strength. And this is our successful missile launch, and it's going to. Um, I think it's just a signal to them about the strength of North Korea for the future and prosperity. Well, I, I just wanted to ask. I mean, do we know? Do we know is is the daughter his only child and and if so is okay so yeah. sorry, I'm seeing seeing some some head shaking I, I don't know what the sort of gender norms and gender politics are in, in North Korea I mean it, it it would be an interesting win for diversity though you know <laughs> ultimately not that great if if the next murderous dictator in North Korea was a woman um but uh, uh I I suspect that is probably not not the case just given what we know about how these uh, sort of autocratic hereditary monarchies tend to work (laughs) yeah no she she's not the only one it's strange she's actually the second daughter i almost feel bad for the first daughter yeah why doesn't she get to go to the to the daddy daughter icbm day at at school yeah it's a very it's a there's a lot of intrigue around the whole thing and it is you're right to think about it as a um, like culturally, I feel like it, it does make sense to like kind of bring the eldest in. And uh, but I I think it is a little too early to think about if there was more messaging on this than maybe what what Catherine was suggesting as just a general like longevity thing. But you know, people have been talking about oh, is, are they trying to introduce the heir? Are they trying to um, create a line of succession? Like as we mentioned, Alan, I think you told us he's thirty eight. Like he's he's not going anywhere. Um, I don't think that it's. Um, I think that some things I've seen out there about, you know, this being a signal for the the line of succession is probably a little bit premature. But yeah, it definitely does seem to be, you know, showing the North Korean people that this is kind of for something bigger. Um, and, and, and it kind of is evocative of, I guess, this very, like anytime, anytime North Korea and nuclear weapons come out, I'm just reminded of, um, the fact that this is uh, a hermit kingdom that really is clinging on to dear life with this one big weapon that it has, the, the nuclear weapon, that the the only reason it sees itself as being able to survive in this moment and not be annihilated by external powers. So I do, I do think it does have a lot of layers to it. I don't presume to know what the intention was at all, but there there's a lot baked into the cake, I think, for that. Yeah. Well, folks, we'll have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not bring you some object lessons to ponder over until we are back with you next week. Alan, why don't you get us started? 
So the Lawfare Slack contains multitudes, all of which are wonderful. But one of my favorite corners of the Lawfare Slack is our Lawfare Dependence channel, where we post pictures of our dependents, which is usually like boring stuff like children and the occasional dog. But sometimes you get a really fun Lawfare Dependence entry. And the latest one, and this is my object lesson, is from our very own Catherine Pompilia. And it is her uh, parrot, Moby. And there's just an amazing picture of just this very... I don't know. I always find parrots to look very intelligent and thoughtful and kind of inquisitive, uh, peeking up over her laptop, uh, which has the Lawfare, which is open to the Lawfare site. Uh, so I think with Catherine's permission, we will post that uh, to Twitter. And that is my object lesson. The, the, the greatest Lawfare dependent uh, of all time, the parrot. Maybe. Absolutely. Maybe some Patreon content will be him dancing to Gangnam style because he does that a lot. The dream, the dream. I have to say, I find birds somewhere between creepy and terrifying. I don't know why. I think it's something built into like my dinosaur DNA. Yeah, it's because they're dinosaurs. It's because birds are dinosaurs. Yeah, all birds. I'm like, even chickens. I'm like, I don't trust you. You got something going on back there. You got that predatory look in your eyes. But uh, but I'm sure you're. I'm sure the pair is very nice, Catherine. I would I would not cast aspersions on them specifically. No, he's crazy. But he's 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 an African gray, and I I'm pretty sure that they're the only types of parrots that can mimic voices exactly. Um, oh, wow. So he's creepy in the way in that he mimics my voice, my stepdad, my mom. When I was a child, he used to scream for my mother in my voice. Wow, and that's now crazy. he just yeah. Now he coughs and sets his alarm and lives his little birdie life. We had uh, Christopher Jackson, who played uh, George Washington in Hamilton, come to my house for Whoa. a um, fundraiser that we were doing for the community college here. And he was singing in my living room and Moby's in my kitchen. And Moby uh, was whistling along to Christopher Jackson and screaming over him while singing. So Moby is actually an unofficial Hamilton cast member as well because of that. So he's That's pretty special bird. Yeah. Yeah. If only I could imitate his voice, that'd be perfect. That'd be amazing. <laughs> a, a parrot of many talents. Exactly. Well, for my object lesson, uh, I'm going back to the obituary pages for better force. I feel like I've been doing this a lot lately, lately talking about people who have passed away. So apologies, but I'm going to do one more. Um, uh, Michael Gerson passed away, uh, who is a columnist for uh, the Washington Post, a former Bush administration, George W. Bush administration speechwriter. I am a DC local uh, and I've read the Washington Post uh, and probably follow the columnist more than your average person, even though I don't. There are plenty of columnists I don't particularly like. Uh, and he wrote a lot of things I don't particularly agree with. Um, but I always found him a very readable uh, and interesting and more thoughtful than a lot of folks. Uh, and I was sad to see he had passed away. And then somebody pointed me to a column he wrote uh, that is of a brand that I don't usually read these sorts of columns, but I always found his fairly reflective, which are kind of the life columns about reflecting on something of a more universal experience. And he wrote this one about his youngest son going to college um, that I thought was actually like a really touching, wonderful reflection on parenthood uh, and dying, uh, which the two things kind of go hand in hand. And so I wanted to read, I'm going to read the part of it uh, that I was most struck by because I thought it was really, really exceptional. Oh, he's describing how his son is going to be like a little homesick. Uh, he says, but with due respect to my son's feelings, I have the worst of it. I know something he doesn't, not quite a secret, but incomprehensible to the young. He's experiencing the adjustments that come with beginnings. His life is starting for real. I have begun the letting go. Put another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes. I have no possible future that is better without him close. There's no use brooding about it. I'm sure my father realized it at a similar moment, and I certainly didn't notice or empathize. At first, he was a giant who held my hand and filled my sky, then a middle-aged man who paid my bills, now, decades after his passing, a much-loved shadow. 
but I can remember the last time I hugged him in the front hallway of his home where I always had a room. It is a memory of warmth. I can only hope to leave my son the same. Parenthood offers many lessons in patience and sacrifice, but ultimately it is a lesson in humility. The very best thing about your life is a short stage in someone else's story, and it is enough. Um, I thought that was quite striking and lovely uh, and brought me to tears a little bit. Uh, that's pretty easy to do these days about parenthood related things. Um, so I thought I would share uh, and uh, on this occasion of his passing. Catherine, what do you have us for us in terms of object lessons? Hopefully something more upbeat. A little bit. So fun fact about me is that uh, anytime that I need to focus, I'm really helped out by listening to jazz or like smooth jazz. It's how I wrote my entire undergraduate thesis. It's how I spend all of my time editing for Lawfare and oh, writing. I love it. Yeah. Smooth jazz, uh, like, like, like Kenny G. Like Kenny, like saxophone, oh, coffee shop. So, yeah. Sopra- wow. Soprano saxophone, to be clear. Yeah. It has to be soprano saxophone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my, my Spotify analytics are going to be just like, like – probably thousands of hours of jazz. Um, but a friend sent to me a couple weeks ago, um, it's an album on Spotify called Ethiopeaks Ethio Jazz 1969 to 1974. And it is the weirdest, funkiest Ethiopian jazz. And I would 10 out of 10 recommend. It has also gotten me through all of the editing this week and it's fantastic. So yeah, that's my object lesson. That is pretty amazing. I, I will say, uh, if folks have not checked it out, I don't know if it's on Spotify, actually. I used to have it on other musical service, but the Smithsonian Folkways, Folkways Collection, which is an amazing collection of a lot of Americana type music, but also does a fair amount of like international historical periods. And it does a great job capturing like popular music, including a lot of jazz from like the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And then like really cool funk and disco music from the 70s, 80s and 90s from different corners of the world. Um, that is uh, an amazing collection of stuff like that. And that sounds like right up its alley uh, and something I used to I used to spend a lot of time when I was writing papers in my 20s digging into that. Maybe I, it's time for me to turn back to my Folksways collection uh, at some point. Heyman, what do you have for us this week? So I have a a performance that I saw. It's called Trojan Women. It's based on the Euripides play about the women survivors after the, the sacking of um, Troy. And it's interesting because this like onstage version of, of the musical is the second version that the Singaporean director has done for this interpretation. He first did one in Singapore and then this one is showing in, or I saw it in Brooklyn and it's the Korean kind of twist on the Trojan women. So he's used the Trojan women's story as a kind of medium to talk about the the struggles that women have to go through or went through after all of their husbands and sons were killed in war and kind of telling the story about women survivors of war. And so this version was done through Panzori, which is a ancient storytelling kind of Korean opera style form of performance. And it I think was was meant to be a kind of proxy for the experience of comfort women in Korea. And it was beautifully done. And I thought it was just a, a great mix of the the ancient storytelling medium and a traditional Greek play, but also transposing that onto a different culture. And they also had the stage that was interactive and had English translation. So it was very accessible. And it was one of the first performances that I'd seen recently that I think kind of brought me to 
to tears almost. It was just, it was very intense. So something that I would definitely recommend if you're ever in a city that can, um, that will show you something, the, one of the renditions of the Trojan woman play, or I don't know. It's a play. It's, it's a musical, I guess. Very cool. Yes. We will have to hope they, they bring the tour, uh, to DC and Minnesota and other corners, uh, where the lawfare team resides. Until then, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security. Be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We were once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Alan, not Quinta, this week, uh, and our special guests Catherine and Heyman, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.